Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. Hi, Ann Friedman. Is that time again? Uh, spring books, baby. We've been reading. Oh, We're always reading. I love it. We have so many incredible authors on the show today, so we should get right into it. On this week's agenda, we are talking about books. Poetry with Ali Liebegott, graphic memoir from Mira Jacob. Gina talked to Schwinn Juliana Wang about her short story collection. And essays by Brielle Hopper. So first up, Anne, you talk to very good pal of the podcast, Ali Liebegott, about her brand spanking new poetry collection, The Summer of Dead Birds. (laughs) (laughs) This is my NPR voice. Ali, thank you for being on CYG. Thank you for having me. Your book made me feel all the feelings. Sorry. (laughs) No, I think it's very good. I mean... Don't apologize for making me feel feelings. <laughs> I feel like it's a it's a work of uh, emotional terrorism to put this book in the world. <laughs> I mean, did it feel like emotional terrorism to write it? Well, most of the writing in the book was done 10 years ago, mm-hmm. at least. And so it was sort of happening as I was going through these situations. And so it was very, uh, it was almost like trauma writing, you know, where it was like, just a processing but it's been very weird to revisit those emotional things like over a decade later you know so did you like pull out some old notebooks and go back in no uh (laughs) you know i recently i watched that marie kondo show Uh uh-huh i have boxes of journals from my whole life and i thought i don't want them anymore (gasps) i know it's very controversial i'm at least reading what's there before I get rid of it. Wow. And if there's something in there that I don't want to get rid of, I don't. And do you set aside the whole notebook and keep it? Or do you just like tear out that page? Tear out the pages. (gasps) I found like right when I graduated high school, I wasn't like out to the world yet, but it was like all bubbling up. And it was so interesting to go back to that. And it, it was like, basically, you need to drop out of community college and stop taking algebra and move to San Francisco and be a writer. And I was like, so proud of myself for like kind of knowing to trust that intuition Mm. at that age, in a way. I was surprised that like I had that much intuition when I went back to read the journals. You didn't remember it coming up? I do, but I always feel like I remember things wrong, Mm. you know? And um, it was very interesting to feel like, that was how I remembered it. And it's true. It was right there in the journal, <laughs> scrawled in mental hospital handwriting. <laughs> uh, okay, so I, I suppose it's a good thing to say that this is a book of poetry. Yeah, it's a long, I, I call it a long poem. It's interesting. I was going uh, to actually ask about that category because not that poetry can't be narrative, but it feels like exceptionally narrative compared to a lot of poetry that I've read, which is one thing I really liked about it. Thanks. I mean, are you a poetry reader? I, you know, I think it's actually, um, I resist it sometimes, yeah. but um, I, I don't understand how you can be someone who loves words and not love poetry. It's so pure. It's I just, feel like people have a block against poetry like I have a block against quinoa. Like, if you serve me quinoa and I take a bite, I'm okay with it. Uh But the thought of it just makes me want to die, you know? And so I think a lot of people have that. Because a lot of people say, oh, I don't like poetry, but I liked your book, you know? Mm. And it's it's just an interesting, we learned, like, the wrong way about poetry back in the day. Or it's like this mysterious thing, or it's this boring thing, or it's in this language that no longer is relevant, you know? Right. Yeah, your language is extremely relevant. And maybe you can talk a little bit about the way you chose to divide it up and the way the sections are. Sure. So it's um, it's in four parts. And I've always, since I began writing, when I've like, worked on some poems, I've always published them as a, a chapbook. 
mm-hmm. as as a way to kind of mark progress. So in some ways, the sections of the book were probably all chapbooks at some point. But the first section was a um, my ex, we took care of her mom when she was dying. And that whole uh, kind of long section was sort of about doing home hospice for her, you know, and that that I don't usually read from the first part, which I think, is it called Winter? I think it yeah, might be called Winter. the first Winter. one is called Winter. And then um, it's also weird to write a book and then never remember what's in the book, which happens all the time. <laughs> well, technically the book is now part of your past. Yes. And if the past is easy to forget, <laughs> then... <laughs> you know, I had a therapist at the time say, you know, very, very few lesbian relationships survive the death of a mother. And I don't know if that's because she was... Um, a lesbian therapist and that th- that's why she said I don't know if other relationships do or don't you know I don't know and then so I I was living in a after I sort of was like breaking up for that relationship I had I was living in my art studio and I was living with my dog at the time this insane Dalmatian I had named Rorschach and um we were just walking all the time and you know it's really interesting because this was all pre-cell phone and I think a lot about like if I was going to go through a divorce right now, I I don't think I would have the same kind of relationship to the grief because mm-hmm. I think I would be distracted by scrolling through Instagram or, you know, doing stuff online or there's just like, but at the time I, I just literally was like living in this art studio and like walking around the neighborhood for hours with, mm-hmm. with this dog. So that's the second section. And I have to ask, was so reading this, I, I feel like this book really helped me understand people who love pets in a new way. <laughs> um, and I, I, was Rorschach your first pet? R- Rorschach was not my first pet, okay. but she was my first, you know, she was a very, inst- I moved, when I moved from San Francisco to New York in 1994, I was like leaving a different relationship and I was like, gotta go to New York and become a new person, you know, <laughs> as that, as that happens. Wait, did that happen? I didn't because it turns out, Anne, wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> but I got wait. The, are you a therapist? I wish. <laughs> yes, I do. I I don't. I don't take insurance though. <laughs> but but it was like I got this dog right before I moved to New York, which is the maybe the dumbest thing a person can do. And um, but this Dalmatian. So she really and she lived to be sixteen years. So she, you know, I moved there when I was like twenty two. So she really was witness that period of your life where you're like you grow up intense identity formation totally yeah and she was my companion and Mm. as she got older I was really worried about her dying I couldn't imagine not having her Mm. you know and and she lived uh the day after her 16th birthday she died which is insane for a dog to live that long but you just love unstable animals I I I love a lot of unstable things (laughs) and I mean, that's what this book is kind of about. Yes, it is. When you love unstable things so fiercely <laughs> yes. and also fear death. Yes. How do you live? You become a poet, I guess. <laughs> you are 100% a poet. <laughs> I'm wondering about, okay, so you return to something that you had presumably written down right after this period of death and grieving and breakup and were you able to like emotionally return to that place like as you now or did it feel different? You know, were you writing to yourself back then? No, this was, I wrote this in real time. You didn't edit or adjust it at all? I mean, yes, in some ways, actually, it was structural, actually, the mm. adjustments. There were, um, in my first book, I had written letters to uh this boy I had met in a cave. And so I was trying to use that same format, but with letters to my um, sliding scale therapist. And then ultimately I was like, I don't think that's, I think it's distracting in this opposed to, I just wanted something starker. Got so, it. but the, so the editing was really whittling mm. and also just sort of like moving um, pieces. You know, I, I was really trying to figure out how to end the book. And would the book end with Rorschach still alive? Because the whole book is like fearing her death, you right. know? So I guess maybe maybe I should ask that question in a different way. Because I, I had made an assumption, clearly wrong, that you 
went back in and tinkered a little. No. But like, so, so what is it like for you now to read it or it's talk awful. about it? I actually, I just was thinking, I don't think I want to do it anymore. <laughs> I don't, um, there's like certain pages I can't read because I get, like the first couple of readings I had, I cried, which I, I wasn't expecting to, I don't know. I'm so out of touch with like, how I'm feeling. It's just like, me of too. course I would start <laughs> crying. It's yeah. like basically opening something that you haven't, even when I got the galleys, like I was, I was not in an emotional place. I didn't read the book when they sent it to me after it was finished. I didn't, I looked at it, you know, but like I didn't go, go in there and I literally just like, I remember leaving work and then going to do my reading at um, Skylight and just sort of, encountering it uh emotionally on the page and then the next day I had a reading in um San Francisco at City Lights and City Lights I was a real mess like I I thought I hadn't even started reading and I was like sobbing and I was like oh I feel like I look like a crazy person here <laughs> but I probably did but it didn't I mean what can you do wait you mean you were emotionally affected by an experience <laughs> of grief and mourning that you had yourself <laughs> you're a human <laughs> but how many readings have you gone to where someone just like doesn't even start reading and just sobs. <laughs> okay, that it is true. It is true that I haven't been to readings that begin with sobbing. It began that way, and well, how it all began. <laughs> but what are you gonna do? There's this line in the book where you write, "I want to choose the cancers in my book." Yeah, I read that as someone who is also a writer as and I'm totally totally talking about myself right now, the way that I get to kind of pick and choose what I'm, what boxes I'm going to open or what painful things I want to go back to. But hearing you say that, it seems like, I don't know, is that is that how you meant it? I don't know. It's interesting you ask about that line because there's three deaths in this book, right? There's the death of the relationship. There's the death of my ex's mom. And there's the the fear of the impending death of the dog, you know, and... I feel like cancer, especially when like a sudden like terminal cancer is like, it could happen to any of us right now. We know that intellectually, but then when it happens, it's like, uh, so I don't know. It's just such a, I don't know what kind of language we can use on call. You can use any language you want. It's such a mind fuck. And you can definitely say mind fuck on this podcast. (laughs) So it's like that thing of, to say, you know, I want to choose the cancers in my book, like, in some ways, it it doesn't make any sense at all, because if you're choosing the cancers in your book, then the cancers are probably related to people you know and love. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I think, I don't know exactly, like, what that line was trying to get at was, like, wanting kind of some sort of emotional clarity, like, mm. which, it's like wanting to be able to control the things that we, we have zero control over, you know? I want to know if... Writing poetry is something that you do like as part of a practice all the time, like regularly? Well, it's changed. Like I really, in the last 10 years, have had this thing where I like to go to a visual art show and write a poem Mm -hmm. there, like in relationship to the visual art. So I have these like weird things that I do do sometimes. Like I'll never go to a museum or a show without the intention of writing a poem while I'm there, you know? When I worked at the grocery store in San Francisco, I did this series, which I now I'm like really proud of that it was called Shifts. And I published it in a um, chapbook. I would come and go and this job was great because you could come and go. But if you went too long, you had to work um, 90 days before you got back on the health insurance. Mm. So I was going to do this project where, and I used to run this writer's retreat in Mexico. And so we'd be gone sometimes and then you'd get kicked off the health insurance. And so shifts was going to be one poem every day for 90 days until I was back on the health insurance. And the poem started at the register with, the first thing that I rang up. So it's like whatever you came through my line with, you know, and I did it. I did it for like, I think 33 days. And then I I could just feel kind of like just this natural end to it, you know. And some of the poems I, I like a lot. Sometimes I'll do like weird things like that. I, I've written poetry sporadically since I've been in Los Angeles. It, it comes from, I think, a, a different place than fiction, you know. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess that's sort of what I was asking about. I mean, I know you're also a visual artist. You painted the image that's on the cover yeah. of the book. I was so grateful they let me do that. And I have to assume that this is Rorschach. That's Rorschach. I mean, it's a, it's a, she wouldn't, she would be upset with how she was rendered there. But um, <laughs> that's, uh, that's sort of like uh, the, the last page of the book. We, we went on every year for her birthday, we would go on a road trip. She never wanted to go on the road trip, but I would make her go. And it was often like the desert in summer. It was just like a hundred bad ideas. But we went to Carlsbad Caverns from um, San Diego in like, I remember it was near Labor Day and um, she, her birthday was May 28th. And um, we went to this Motel 6 outside of Carlsbad Caverns and um, had a birthday party for her. And that's that's what that painting is of. Aww. Allie, thank you so much for being and on the podcast. thank you, America. Read a poem already. Listen, we're doing our best. I know, you really are. <laughs> <laughs> One poet a year. <laughs> uh, Allie, the best. We love best. Allie. Allie. Allie is amazing. We love Allie. I'm so excited for this next one. Amina, you interviewed Mira Jacob about her graphic memoir that we both loved, Good Talk. My name is Mira Jacob, and my book is called Good Talk. Mira, we're so excited to have you on CYG today. I'm very excited myself. Thanks. Can you talk a little bit about um, why you wanted to create a memoir that was told through your conversation rather than told through your own narrative perspective? Yes, absolutely. So usually I would actually go toward a narrative perspective because I'm mm -hmm. a writer and you think, oh, sentences are my tool and they're sort of my ally. But what was happening in that moment, so my son is brown. I am brown. My husband is white. My son lands somewhere between us on the color spectrum. Mm. And he was obsessed with Michael Jackson, which I know means a really different thing now, but in 2014 meant, you know, he had the dances, he had the moves, and he was asking a lot of questions. And his questions, some of them were really funny, like, um, what is a LaToya? <laughs> and, <laughs> I love little, ki little kids ask the like, best questions. What is a LaToya? <laughs> Um, and, and did he lose his other glove? Which I was like, of course you would think that. And then, but then some of them were really painful. So he was asking, did Michael Jackson like, what did he like being better, being brown or being white? Oh, because I should back up and say that what happened was we got him the albums, the Michael Jackson albums. Of course. Not realizing that if you leave a six-year-old alone in a room with a turntable and these enormous Michael Jackson albums, he comes out with questions like, what color is Michael Jackson? Is he, is he brown or is he white? <laughs> Am I the man in the mirror? <laughs> <laughs> and so when he said that, I was like, yeah, you know, he, um, you know, he's black. He, start, he started brown and he sort of turned white. And he goes, he turned white? And I said, yeah. And he goes, are you going to turn white? And I was like, no. Wow. And he said, am I going to turn white? And I was like, no. And he goes, daddy? And I was like, daddy's already white. And he goes, but what's he always? <laughs> and then we went from that question to... Are white people afraid of brown people? Which, by the mm. way, he asked at the York subway stop in this very chipper voice. The train stopped. It opened. And he yelled, are white people afraid of brown people? <laughs> <laughs> and scarred the entire and subway the, car. Yeah, exactly. The entire car was like, <gasps> um, he asked that question. And then he asked, is daddy afraid of us? Mm. And the day he asked that, I was like, I don't know what to do. Because I understood that we were in this moment in America where we were ramping up to a specific kind of racial violence, and meaning we were ramping up to the acknowledgement of a specific kind of mm -hmm. racial violence that has existed here for a really long time and that I've had the privilege not to be a part of for the most part. My parents were brought here in 1965. They were brought here with laws that actually really favored, favored their coming here and their being sort of nestled into the community. They worked hard. Right. But they like also all of the immigration laws post civil rights really favored um, a specific kind of immigrant. Exactly. Coming to America. Exactly. And they were among those immigrants. So the reason I decided to draw this book as opposed to write it is because when I tried to write my son's questions, when I tried to kind of position them in an essay, I kept imagining what the comment section would be. And I knew that that comment section was going to be filled with people that judged every sentence leading up to his actual questions. Oh, she's this kind of mother. Oh, why are they doing this? Where do they live? Mm -hmm. What do they... And, and I knew they were going to judge us in a way that I felt was going to make me feel really sick. 
And it was also specifically that they were going to judge him. So what I did instead was I drew us on printer paper. I went and grabbed all the Michael Jackson albums from his room. I put them on my dining room table. And then I drew our conversation in bubbles and put them on top of the albums and and put us, and then just like stood on the dining room table, took pictures of it, and then made that into a visual essay. And the minute I did that, I was just giving people the feeling of actually eavesdropping on a conversation. Mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to package it for them. I wasn't trying to make it okay for their ego to take in this information. I was just saying, this is what we said. This is what it was. And then they could live with the emotions that came from it. I love that. Um, you know, how faithful is the book to actual conversation that you've, that you've had throughout your life, right? Is it, are you aiming for a substantive kind of truth? Did you record any of those conversations mm-hmm. with, um, you know, the exchanges with family and friends? No, I didn't record any of them. And, and I think in terms of how faithful they are, I would say this one is that they're definitely condensed. I don't put in a lot of the airtime between one question and another. I did try to replicate the ways that conversations can wander mm-hmm. off topic. But also, you and I are going to have this conversation right now. We're going to leave this room. And we're going to remember it completely differently mm-hmm. because you're going to take in parts of this conversation in a totally different way than I will. And so in making the book, I'm just writing the conversations as I remember them, as my body took them in and metabolized them because that's how they live in me. Um, you know, a lot of conversations about especially like difficult things with family and friends are usually like deemed to be private. So especially like when you talk about things like race, I'm wondering if you felt, you know, like how you felt about retelling those stories and if there was any tension around that or Mm -hmm. if you had to ask for permission, for example, for some people for telling those stories. Okay. So one of the things that happens in the course of this book is we start off with my sons asking questions in Mm -hmm. 2015 and then we move through an America that ramps up to electing Donald Trump. And in that same moment, my in-laws became Trump supporters. And of course. As, <laughs> as would happen. Um, and we're holding, you know, signs for him and, um, and our family communication broke down. These are people who have been part of my life for 20 years. We show up for each other at events. We show up for each other in hospitals. We show up for each other. And I know they love me. And yet they were making this decision that was so painful for me that I almost didn't know how to handle it. And I tried to talk to them about it. But early on, their um, response was, we don't feel like we need to explain why we're doing this to you. We don't want to talk about this. And we're not going to. For our family, it's better if we don't talk about this. Let's just all get along. I think it's really easy to get along if nothing about your life is compromised. I think it's a really easy ask if you can get up every morning and feel safe in this country. Mm. If you can get up and tell yourself that your son's going to come home okay. It's okay for us to ignore what's happening. But it's not okay if you're on the other end of that. So when you ask, did you ask for permission to have these conversations now? No, or to like write down those conversations? Mm-hmm. Definitely not. Not because I don't love them and respect them, but because all of this violence that happens to us in these situations in mixed race families, all of it is under the guise of, we love you so this shouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. And all of it is under the guise of, we love you, and love means we don't discuss these things in public. That's a really convenient way for white supremacy to stay white supremacy. To, to both give itself the illusion that it is open-minded enough to have a brown daughter-in-law, but also vote in violence toward me, right? Like, that's insane. And to not talk about it feels like asking me to get hit and not say, this hurts. I mean, it's very convenient. It's very convenient. How did you, like, how did you end up communicating about the book with them? Yeah, Um, I sent it to them before I published it. And by the way, I should say, our relationship had grown strained. We were still showing up for each other. Mm. Because they love me. And I love them. Family. (laughs) Yeah. And we're just going to do that. 
So our relationship had been strained, and I sent it to them, and I said, this is the book I wrote, and it's about our family, and it's about what's happening in America. And I wrote it with a lot of love, and I hope you can see that in here. And they, you know what, they had it, and then a couple weeks later, they said, um, my mother-in-law called and said, we read your book. We don't know how to talk about it with you yet, but we love you very much. And that to me was like, okay, that's what this is going to be. It's both things. Like to pretend that the love isn't there, to be like, that's not enough. I know Mm -hmm. there are plenty of people that want me to say that's not enough because it feels really good to watch walk away from people in righteous anger. What feels better than that, honestly? Mm -hmm. What feels better than just cutting off the pain and being like, I don't have to deal with this anymore. But those are my son's grandparents. And my son is losing so much already in this country. And I don't want him to lose more. So what that means is I hear them say, we don't know how to talk to you about this. We love you. And I say, I love you too. I just, I have to sit with that. That is so, that's, you know, it's so much, but it's also, I think, an experience that so many people can relate to in this, you know, like you can't be selective about the things that, um, that the strain is about, right? To be in any kind of relationship is to have strain, and and that racial tension is a very specific kind of strain. Like I will, <laughs> yes. I will say, you know, that yes. you are when your identity is challenged in that way. But I think that that feeling of we have strife about something. I don't know how to talk to you about it, but I heard you, and I'm just gonna sit with that. That is, I'm like, that's something I can relate to about many, many things that are not as big as race. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing, right? People, it's funny because when people talk about interracial relationship in this country, I think they have a sort of fantasy version, the fantasy version where all oh, the babies are beige. <laughs> I mean, right, I mean, but that's but that's what the fantasy is, right? Is that whenever right. people talk about interracial relationship, they're just like think about these exotic, beautiful babies, but nobody's talking about that. Like this shit is hard. We yes. can get legislation for this to even happen. Yes, and and all interracial relationship or the way that we talk about interracial relationship also centers whiteness in a way that is really like kind of like blows my mind. You know, absolutely. I'm just like, how do you, how can you be in an interracial relationship and still be the dominant like kind of conversation and also some interracial relationships don't even involve white people but that is always the that is always the frame you know it's always like a white person plus you're right and insert someone here insert someone here and then the other the other idea there too is that is that the minute we mix everything turns into love i mean have you not seen all those documentaries (laughs) on the loving family <laughs> like that, like that's how we solve racism. Right. Is that we we have to like yoke ourselves to white people and everything is chill again. Oh yes, of course. Not not that like that's actually a very hard thing to do and so much more like racism is revealed in that like moment. kind of moment. Yeah. Yes. And that's the thing that I wanted to get to in this is not the fantasy version. And then conversely, I think there's also let's say like I think there are plenty of people I know because I get a lot of hate mail from them who um, who think that the minute you you marry a white person is because you hate yourself. And the minute they marry you, it's right. because they want they want a servant. Do you know what I mean? There's just this real suspicion. I know, but that's also, that's also centering whiteness, right? Of like, course. In a way where it's like the, the white partner is that that's the, that's the person to aspire to. Yes. Like that's the person who yes. sets the standard for what the relationship is. Would you like to respond to a bunch of angry emails in Please, my inbox? Because I would them, really appreciate it. Send them it. my way. Send them my way. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know what's so funny? I just um, I just did this uh, reading in Minnesota with Tina Chang, who has a book of poems out called Hybrida, and it was written in the same moment that, that my book was in. She, she is Chinese-American, and her husband is um, Haitian, I believe. And... It's a, and she talks about all of these same dynamics coming up mm-hmm. between them. And what does it mean to, like, what does it mean to be, for me, what does it mean to be sort of model minority? And what does it mean to have parents that aspire to that? Mm-hmm. And what does it mean when that completely breaks down, as it has from the day I was, you know, out in the world <laughs> by myself and looking around and being like, I don't, I don't. I don't think America is what you think America is. <laughs> you know, and what do you, and then how do you turn and how do you kind of have that conversation with yourself and say, what is it that I 
want? What is it that I am doing? What does my power look like? Mm -hmm. How have I myself interrupted other people's dignity and their lives and their days with my bullshit? How have I done that? How do I get a hold of myself? You know, like one of the pressures of being a minority is that you you kind of don't get to be an individual. You know, like you're always whatever you do is the choice that, you know, it has implications for, for everybody, everybody that's your yes. color, everybody that's <laughs> your, you just never get to be, you never get to be like, hi, I'm Mary Jacob. I, I did this thing and I did it just for me because of where I am in my own tiny place in history, as opposed to like, I'm making a choice that will impact every single brown person. I mean, you're saying this lived. and every, like all the ghosts of every disapproving auntie just walked yeah. into the room to like, give us a look. I mean that was the over that was the overwhelming feeling that I had just you know I you you participate a lot in public life and you are you know so you get to share your ideas in in the world but I think that a thing that has always that I have always admired about you is that you you stand really firmly in your individuality you know like not saying like hi as a brown person like right. here here is what this choice means and instead like really defining yourself for yourself and I think that that's something that's so powerful for other minorities to see, especially immigrants, because the baggage of immigration it's is so just, huge. Yes. It's just like, it's a lot. But like for me, I'm like, I'm the first person in my family in America. So if yeah. I have children, like, you know, like they will have the baggage of being a first generation something. Of course. You know, and then I'll be the like disapproving helicopter, <laughs> like mom. Like that's, that's oh, just like what's going on, you mm-hmm. know? But I just, it's something that like in your writing and in your speaking that has always, it has it has always called out to me of like you don't have you don't have to carry the baggage of like all of your ancestors, but also it's really important to just put your foot down and say, this is me. This is who I am. I am an individual. I'm one person, and I don't have to be defined by all of these identities that right. are being like. We give ourselves because we. Well, here, okay. So I had a student last night who actually asked me this question. So I teach writing as well. Who said, "What do you do with the part though where?" When you write things that are true, you feel like you're letting down your people. I'm like a white person does not know what that means. I know exactly, <laughs> and that's what, and that's a, that's almost exactly what I told her. I said, you know, it's crazy because we sort of have to present as this monolith, and increasingly in this moment, mm-hmm. in this political moment, we do. We sort of link arms and we're like, we are the people of color, you know, like impenetrable. But in that moment, the minute you do that, you lose your vulnerability, Mm -hmm. you lose your introspection, you lose your ability to take something apart and know it fully. You lose all the things that whiteness allows itself just for getting up in the morning. And that's baffling, right? It's baffling. It's baffling. I mean, one of the things that I was telling you before we started recording is that I think that, you know, the number one lesson that I've learned uh, interacting with white people in romantic relationships is that, I've just learned that I can want more and I can ask for things like very shamelessly. Like that's that's the thing that I didn't, I just like didn't know that until I was like intimate with white people in that way. Mm -hmm. And the lighter side of this is like, well, this is why interracial dating is actually (laughs) like great. (laughs) Really helpful. Like your white boyfriend will tell you his salary and then your mind will, you know, like your life will change. This happened to me all the time. But the heavier side of this is that we still don't quite have a way of talking about interracial relationship that honors like both people in the relationship, right? Or that... Um, even in 2019, that makes it seem not fraught or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why I think it's, you know, starting the book with like questions from your like from your son. It's so powerful because you're like, well, here is a person who doesn't get to make that choice. Right. Of this person is the result of this kind of relationship, and and their questions are valid and their experience is valid. And how are we going to answer those questions, right? Because his mm-hmm. father and I are going to have really different answers. And I noticed early on that my son was asking me all the questions about race because I'm brown and because he's brown and because on some level he knew that his experience of the world was going to be more like mine. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, when this happens, it's also really disheartening for me in a way because I also want to ask for the salary you deserve, ask for the things that you want Don't always second guess yourself. Don't feel like you're taking up too much space in this world. I want him to inherit 
that. I want him to, like, I want him to inherit yeah. the, the kind of I'm going to take up space in the world. Yeah. And he's maybe not going to get that from me as much, right? Yeah. And part of me is like, run, little brown boy. Take it all. Take it all. <laughs> you're like, just you're like, let the whiteness jump out and like teach you and teach you things. I just want to say, like, thank you for writing this book. It will speak to people on so many different levels. And I think that it will really bring forward that conversation that people have in private spaces that they're really afraid to expand on so i just i just really want to say thank you for that thank you so much and thanks for joining us today thanks for having me her short story collection, Home Remedies. Let's listen. Can you tell me how you want me to say your name, particularly your first name? Or do you go by Juliana? I mean, I go by Juliana Mm -hmm. only because no one could pronounce my actual name. When you were growing up? When I was growing up, I picked Juliana out of a dictionary in second grade. And there was only like 20 names. So I just picked one. Just grabbed it. And then like, I just let people call me like Julie, Julian, like... Julia, I don't really, I don't feel like it's, it doesn't really matter. But in Chinese, you would never say Xuan, you know, you would never say the last name, the first name first. first. You would say Wang Xuan. When you think of your name, do you think Wang Xuan? Yeah, I think Wang Xuan. Yeah, or like Xuan Xuan or something. Yeah. But like Juliana is like, I'll take that. That's fine. Sure. (laughs) You're like my gringo friend. It's it's just easier for everybody. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for being on Call Your Girlfriend. Thank you. We're here to talk about your book, Home Remedies, which is a book of stories. I feel like it's really tempting to look at this collection through a lens of identity. And that's definitely there about how many different ways there are to be Chinese Mm -hmm. and what that can mean. One of the ways that you do that so well is by dropping us into very specific places and social orders. Like when you take us to L.A., where I also grew up, we visit these very specific suburban neighborhoods. The same is true in Beijing. There's a character who runs from a big career to hide out in what he calls a third tier city on the coast. Or maybe Mm -hmm. the narrator calls it that in China. As you were devising these characters and stories, where did you start? Did you begin with the person? Did you start with the place? With every story, I think I started somewhere different, maybe. Mm-hmm. I have journals. I like I work from my journals first. I never have a document that has nothing on it. It's always from, you know, an interesting observation or something I fictionalize and I kind of gather it into one document and try to make sense of it. And if it's really working, sometimes everything in your life fits into the story. Mm-hmm. You know, every person you talk to and like the way the the light looks that day and what song you were listening to. And then after that, I have to put it away (laughs) and then look at it later. But first, it's just a matter of trying to tell something that I'm feeling at that moment. So maybe we should talk about a specific story because there are so many. Yeah. The one I alluded to about the gentleman who moves to a third tier city on the coast, Mm -hmm. that's a story of two Olympic divers. Right. Where did that begin? What was the idea behind that that particular story? Um, That one is just called Vaulting the Sea. Yes, it's called Vaulting the Sea. That one is interesting because I was in living in Beijing at the time. Um, and I was working as a translator for the Chicago Tribune during the Olympics. This is in 2008. Yeah, in 2008. And I was just doing random things, you know, during the Olympics, like eating Peking duck or like going to a sports event. Whoever needed like a translator. We were somewhere 
interviewing the U.S. rowing team. So they didn't need me, you know. And I was just, I remember I was looking at a screen and they were broadcasting these two synchronized divers during an interview. And there was not even sound on the screen. It was just the way they looked at each other and the, their body language. And just, I felt like there was such a, like a, like an aching love story there and I wanted to write it. So the idea started there, but I, I don't know those people. So I think I was drawing from my own experience of maybe loving somebody who didn't love me back and then how I was going to, I don't know, ruin their life <laughs> and not like, you know, and, or like a, if what the way that somebody would need you, but they don't, if they don't love you, then what can you, I don't know. There was some real feeling for me that I wanted to write into the story. And I think like that's how that story came together. You said you're a journaler and kind of like an observer of these mm -hmm. different people. What draws you to some of the people that you write? Is it kind of like from those observations? Mm -hmm. Are there also like ideas that you're looking mm -hmm. to explore? I guess I'm just sort of like, wow, where do you come up with this constellation of like the second generation wealthy mm -hmm. sons of mm -hmm. like Chinese party officials mm -hmm. and then all the way to the like first generation immigrants in Chinatown? Like it's like, how the hell are you doing yeah. all of this? <laughs> um, um. I, I feel like I'm interested in a kind of person that's on the cusp of change. Mm. Um, I started really writing in earnest um, you know, after I moved to Beijing in my early 20s. Um, even before that, I was writing. But then I, I really felt like there's something about moving to Beijing and like living in a foreign country in your early 20s. Growing up in L.A., I felt like, I don't know how to say this nicely. I just felt like I was going, I was a nothing. Like I, I would be fine. Like I would get a job and... I would live a normal life, but I didn't feel like I could stand out in any way. And I didn't, and then something about that bothered me. And I, when I, but I didn't know it until I went back to China and I felt like I was so free to be whoever I wanted. There was no room I was scared to go into. You know, I loved going to art museums. I loved like visiting artist studios and going to shows and just talking to people and then looking at people and going and being free to move about this world and meeting, you know, Beijing at the time was very exciting. It was right before the Olympics. And then right afterwards, there were so many expats coming in and leaving. And there were so many, you know, the people that I met were very like mischievous and um, also drifters and in Days of Being Mild, I wrote about Bei Piao, who are these um, Chinese people who f like kind of kind of float to Beijing. And there were so many of my friends were like that. They were not, you know, they didn't have residence permits. Like them going to Beijing was the big immigration that I my family did to the States, you know. And I think Beijing just gave me so much permission to just be any kind of person and to live an interesting life. And I didn't expect that to happen. I wanted to like plant those people inside of the reader so you could see them. And yeah, so that's how I usually choose characters. I had one more question about the arc of how the stories appear mm. in the book. Was that something that you agonized over? A little bit. When I look at this book, it took all of my 20s, you mm. know, and a little bit of my 30s. And yeah, no how old is the oldest story in this collection? The oldest from when you started. The oldest story was written in two thousand eight mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. Two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Mm -hmm. And the newest. The newest story. I mean, I finished the newest story like this summer. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that was just. It took a long time. Right. In the beginning of my twenties, I was really preoccupied with family, what it means to be a family and the breakup of the families and chosen families. And in my mid-20s, I was concerned about love and I was concerned about heartbreak and disappointment and all of these, um, the things that all my friends were talking about. And then by the time I was 30, I realized I had all these philosophical questions about life, about how, why, you know, what is the meaning of all, everything? So I started to write more speculative and more uh, surreal. And I think all of that, I can see that in the book, even though, in a sense, all the stories about are about love and family and time and space. But I, I could see that in my 20s. And I, it was like good to put that on paper so I don't forget.
what draws you to writing stories? Because some of these mm-hmm. I felt like, you know, they're on the longer side. These mm-hmm. aren't like your quick yeah. two to three mm-hmm. really, you mm-hmm. know, dense, dense pages of short fiction that some of us have read in the past. And in a few cases, I was like, oh, I'm ready to jump into the full novel of yeah. this story. And then, it, and then you would like, you know, zip, like hell lift me out. <laughs> what excites you about writing stories? Well, I, I love the story form. Before I went into grad school, I think I read almost exclusively short stories and short story collections. I started, I remember in high school, it was like Dennis Johnson's Jesus' Son or something. And I just, I love how intense the form allows you to be. I like that you can plant like parallels and nested stories and just the way that stories can end in a completely unexpected way. But then if you read the story the second, the third, the fourth time, you can find the, you know, the seeds that were planted. I can, and I, I love that about it. So I wanted to like be, I can't say master, but I wanted to learn everything I could about this form. And, you know, the sto- the collection took me a long time to write. And that means, you know, a long time to draft and also a lot of time to edit. And I think with every story, I really try to make the reader feel satisfied with the narrative arc of the story. And also I want it to be emotionally resident and true. So, you know, I would put it away for like a year and then read it again. If I like wanted to cry at some part, if there was something still on the line for me, then I knew like this is this is good. But the the things that I felt were silly, I I needed to fix. Yeah, I tend to love stories that are just narratively driven and expansive and kind of play with form. I like a story that I can you know describe to my dad who doesn't read in English. You know, I could if I could just describe to him the story and he will still enjoy it. That means like to me, that's a success. What are you reading right now? Or do you read when you're writing stories, do you still read stories? Oh. I know some authors have like a, they can't muddle their voice yeah. with other people's writing style. Um, I'm, so I'm re- writing a novel right now. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to keep my reading in a third person. <laughs> so I wouldn't shift the form. But there's a lot of good short story collections out right now. I just read um, Brian Washington's Lot, which I loved. Um, Ted Chang's new uh, Exhilaration just came out and I bought it immediately. And I tend to read stories over and over again. Like I love Tobias Wolf stories. Sometimes I'll just read Bullet in the Brain just to get myself, you know, kind of into that kind of language. Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting. I do think of like there is a sort of like machismo white guy vibe that's common to a lot of stories or like the mm-hmm. stories that those of us who've been assigned because I think right, it's not right, as right. common to read for pleasure as maybe people who read novels or nonfiction. Right. But there's so many good women short story writers. Like, and I think life is just interwoven with comedy and tragedy, right? You're always crying and laughing all the time. And I think the people that taught me that were like Mary Gateskill, Laurie Moore, Amy Hempel, you know, Grace Paley. I think these these women had shown me how to kind of laugh at like absurdities and the cruelties of life. I'm interested in your own life and where you've lived because there are so many really astute observations and I don't know how much of them are from your imagination or Mm -hmm. really types that you know. Where have you lived and like was there anywhere that you traveled to to do research for any of these stories? Mm, I think I've lived in every place that a story has been set in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can safely say that. Yeah. Um, I, I like to describe places. I think there's some joy in doing that, um, getting a place exactly right and bring somebody there. I grew up, I, I mean, I moved to L.A. when I was seven. You know, before that, my parents had, you know, like a lot of people from my generation, I was raised by my grandparents for two years and then reunited with my parents at, when I was seven. I remember like coming out of LAX and like seeing my mom in the international terminal. And then growing up, so many of our family friends were in the process of immigrating. Like we were in the process of immigrating. And, you know, I came into contact with lots of p- different people and lots, lots of people from China, right, like family friends or just vague like acquaintances would come and stay with us. And, you know, if before they found a job, they would talk to me about their lives. And I felt like, I didn't want that life to be for nothing. You know, I I felt like a deep empathy with them, like when I was young. My relationship with immigration is that even though I came when I was seven, I always felt like I was just, I was like one of the adults. 
um, going through it with them. And so maybe that makes me see other immigrants always in this um, in the light of I want to understand them. Maybe because I grew up in in a period of such change. Like when I left China at seven, television turned off at 10 p.m. There was just nothing after that, you know. And then five years later, it's completely changed. And the backdrop of all this change is hard to be like a just a really steady person. And I think with the four die, these rich kids driving Maseratis around, and everybody just talking about how they're spoiled and they're you know. No spending money and you know whatever. I I don't really care about that. I feel like what I care about is, I think of you know their parents who are like a little bit younger than my parents who got who grew up with like no new clothes and no nothing like, and then not, now they have this money and they're old. Who who do who do they want to give this to? But the person they love the most. They're so they're not humanized, right? In the culture, even if they write those articles in the New Yorker or like those documentaries, it's never. I never feel like there's a. It's a not a compassionate gaze mm. to look at them. It's not like the Gossip Girl no. where we get the full spectrum. Like even if these are vile characters, yeah. there's the glamour and allure of mm-hmm. watching these rich kids move about their very particular world. Yes, and that's not really afforded to no, other groups. I don't think that's afforded to this group. And if I could just make them real to a reader, then they can be part of the consciousness because they're already a part of our world. It's just that. Then you would they wouldn't seem like so strange. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much. Love Gina on the mic. I know more Gina, please. Always. <laughs> <sighs> and finally, Amina, you chatted with Brielle and Hopper about her collection of essays, Hard to Love. My name is Brielle and Hopper, and my book is Hard to Love Essays and Confessions. Um, Berlin, thank you so much for being on Call Your Girlfriend. We are huge fans. I am overjoyed to be here. I am also a fan. <laughs> um, well, you know, like, let's get into the book. The word confession is so heavy. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the title of the book and your relationship to confessional? Yeah, I feel like confession and confessional, it's a kind of stigmatized word that has to do with women sharing their own experience. It's a way to kind of be dismissive, I think, about a lot of personal writing. So partly I liked just sort of claiming that, but I really liked the religious resonance of it too. Mm -hmm. And this idea that for people for whom confession is a religious practice, like you go, you share the things that are troubling you the most, and then you are, you're burden is lifted and you can kind of like proceed on with your life. And I feel like that's part of what um, sharing these stories is for me as well. I love the way that you frame that because I think that you are really right about the stigma of confessional essays, especially as it relates to women and marginalized people. I I had never really thought of it that way as the fact that, well, you know, like once you share it, then (laughs) the shame is gone and the burden is Mm -hmm. gone. There is a lot. You talk a lot about religion in this Mm -hmm. book also and your um, in your own upbringing and your relationship to it. And I'm wondering uh, if you can kind of walk us a little bit through how, you know, your relationship to religion has or hasn't changed. I grew up in a really conservative evangelical subculture as a woman in a world that didn't really see a lot of room for women to be intelligent or leaders or powerful and how frustrating that was just to feel so profoundly gendered and limited from such a young age. I left the religious world that I'd grown up in. And then when I was in grad school, I kind of came back to it. I started going to a church. It was a historically African-American church that had this pastor who was a woman from South Africa who was a refugee, who was an anti-apartheid activist, who was preaching this entirely different kind of basically feminist activist truth. Mm -hmm. And I felt a community there and I was part of that community for seven years and it just transformed my relationship to religion. The thing that's really interesting about religion and 
especially like for people I think who leave the same the evangelical background that mm-hmm. you did I I went to a school that was run by like 13 mission boards and so wow. when you write about being a Calvinist I was like mm-hmm. oh that's I'm like that's on the chiller <laughs> end of the spectrum like <laughs> like how damaging can this be yeah <laughs> they're not really into like feelings or right. I was, like <laughs> I was always down with the Calvinists I was like oh my god God's frozen people we love them <laughs> A thing that I'm really struck by that you write is that so much of religion is ritual and community. Mm-hmm. And you really expand on that when you write a lot about um, pop culture and television yeah. specifically and how people will seek out that religion and that ritual over yes. and over again. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can unpack that a little for us. Sure. One thing that I'm really interested in is the way that texts can be kind of sacred texts that people gather around and connect through. And that doesn't have to be like scripture. It can be The Fault in Our Stars or old Hollywood, like Betty Davis movies, Maud Martha by Gwendolyn Brooks, like all of these different texts that have just are ways of connecting and and finding community, which feels very religious to me, like the kind of the ritual of returning over and over again to something Mm -hmm. that you find meaningful and then using it as a way to connect to other people who also find meaning in it um, and sometimes sharing that experience. I mean, and you write a lot, a lot, a lot about friendship and the kind of the central importance that it has in in your life and really the central importance that it should have in everyone's life, right? Yeah. What I wanted to do in this book was to kind of focus more on the ways that friendship is not just as wonderful as other kinds of love, but as complicated as other Mm -hmm. kinds of love. I wanted to look at relationships like there are a couple of really epic roommate essays in the book about what happens when you like actually move in with friends and share a life with them and the complexity of that. And, you know, my friend Kathy and I, we'd been friends for seven years and then being like roommates just sort of pushed us to like the brink of insanity. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I guess, can I, can I push you a little bit more on that? Why is it, why is it so important to discuss that friendship is also a complicated relationship because I think that we are we are in this moment where female friendship is very good uh-huh. TM yeah. and you're supposed to collect them, you're supposed to Instagram all the women right. in your life. And so I'm just wondering if you can if you can really articulate why it's important to talk about the complications that yeah. come with that particular kind of relationship. I think it's partly that friendship has the power to when it's uncomfortable, it has the power to transform you. Mm. When friendships have been really challenging, when I've found friends to be kind of really mysterious for me, when I found that like our intuitions about something are really different or our temperaments are really different, like those are the moments where that have been the kind of hardest to navigate, but have also been the moments that have been most um, important. Sometimes the difficulty is in the relationship, but I think sometimes like some of the essays in the book are about external difficulties or, you know, that aren't about the relationship. There's an essay that's about trying to be a friend to someone who lost her sister and how that's played out over the, it's been over a decade now since her sister died and just sort of thinking about what it means to show up for someone and to understand their grief when you don't fully share it. There's a series of essays that are about caregiving and friendships. And I think that's really important because I think we have a pretty, like in U.S. culture, there's a pretty narrow idea about how caregiving works and how interdependence work that often doesn't really account for friend networks. So several of the essays are about my friend Ash and her um, cancer diagnosis and treatment and then the group of friends who kind of... uh, walked with her during that time and showed up for her. And all of us, like two of us were single, um, two of us were married and the kind of care team that supported her. And all of us had different messages being given to us that there was something kind of like wrong or off or weird about the way that we were all just kind of reorganizing our lives to to Mm. support her. And I think that would never have happened if, you know, we'd been blood related or... Um, or, you know, dating. Yeah. But there's something about the friendship bond that people don't, they think of it as like a fun thing that's about like 
getting together and drinking wine and having fun. But like, I think there's something really challenging about the idea that friends can be the people that really are there for each other in life and death situations. I mean, the idea that you're circling around is this idea of chosen family, right? Mm -hmm. Is um, friends as not even just a replacement for your family, but as your actual family and practicing the same rituals and again, community, yeah. really, everything is religion, yeah. <laughs> um, that you would with um, with people that you were blood related or with people yeah. that you were, you know, you were, uh, you were marrying or dating, right? Yeah. And I think that's something that I've been really trying to think through and to seek out models and to think about how to structure this into my life and to kind of build this kind of family with others, you know, like what are the structures, whether it's Um, you know, text threads or getting together in person on a regular basis or celebrating real holidays or made-up holidays or um, uh, just like the kind of commitment to be be with people at their worst moment and have them be there for you. Like what are the Mm -hmm. things that, that kind of create this bond that can go on for decade after decade? Right. I have a friend who always says that, like, she's like, 80% of friendship is just showing up. Yeah. And then she's like, and 20% is just snacking and drinking. And I was yeah. like, you know what? I was like, that sounds sounds about, the ratio sounds yeah. about right. Yeah. <laughs> so I really ratio. believe that. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the concept of hard to love. Yeah. Um, your book is like one of the rare books. I was like, you know what? Based on the name alone, I will read it. <laughs> like it could have been Howard Stern, hard to love yeah. or Hillary Clinton, <laughs> hard to love or whatever. Okay. And I would have 100% picked it up. But I think that you talk, you talk about it in a way that is so, it just like stayed with me for a really, really, really long time. And so I'm just wondering if you could share that with our listeners. Yeah. Thanks. Um, So the story of the title, it was originally going to be called Difficult Women, and that's sort of how I had been imagining the book. And then Roxane Gay wrote that book. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, when somebody takes your title. (laughs) (laughs) But I ended up with the title Hard to Love. It was around the time that Lemonade came out, and you know how there were the poems in between the songs, Mm -hmm. and one, one of them was Women Who Are Difficult to Love. And I was like, difficult to love, hard to love, there's something there that really clicked. And I think what I like about it is that it has all of these meanings that are, you know, partly it's about being a hard to love person. And I feel like everyone is a hard to love person in their own way. Right, (laughs) self-defined. Yes. (laughs) Everyone has their own flavor of being hard to love, but also just the idea that like love is difficult to do, you know, and that if like love is, if you have a relationship where the love just seems easy, it might not be deep love yet or, you know, just like, wait, <laughs> you know, life will happen. It will get more complicated and that's actually good. And I'm not talking about like, you know, necessarily friend drama, but just sort of like living through hard things together where that, whether that's kind of like career disappointments or deep loss or, you know, medical crises or like the things that life things. are made of. Yeah. <laughs> just sort of like love is hard. Um, you know, walking, walking through life with people is hard. And instead of thinking about that as the exception, just thinking about that as like, yep, this is it. This is like what we're here for. Man, Beyonce's impacts always. <laughs> you just, you never know where she's going to show up. Um, Brielan, thank you so much for joining us. I of just, course. I think that you've written a really, um, like a really searing book. And I hope that so many people pick it up to read. And I know that I will enjoy it over the years. So thank, thank you. you so, so much. It was wonderful to be here. Ah, that was great. I love books. I love reading. Um, readers are leaders, y'all. Everybody knows this. What is a book that you've read recently that you've loved? What is a book that I read that I love recently? Didn't I just tell you two of them? Um. <laughs> <laughs> more. The people cry out for more. <laughs> so this is like 100% cheating because it is a galley. Um, AKA which, not published yet. Right, the book is not published yet, but it will be out in July. I read the third installment in Jasmine Guillory's uh, romance <laughs> series when I was in Mexico. Uh, the Wedding Date. And... Again, like a truly delightful, like 
read. Just flawless vacation read. Flawless <laughs> beginning to end vacation read. That woman is a genius. So I'm really excited about it. I think that book is out in July. That was the perfect thing to take on my on my vacation. What have you read that you like? I was lying awake because I finished Susan Choi's trust exercise like late at night where one of those things where you're like, I'm just going to read a few pages. And I like blaze through to the end, set my brain on fire. I love it. I am like a, um, I would not say I'm a Sally Rooney hater, but I like kind of don't get what the fuss is about. I am fussing about Susan Choi. I love this book so much. I am like, yes, interpersonal drama. Yes, stuff from your teen years following you into adulthood and the things she does with perspective. I was just like, oof, um, <laughs> laying awake in bed thinking about it after I read the last pages. So strong recommend for fans of and not fans of Sally Rooney. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. You can find links to all of the authors we interviewed in our show notes, and you can use the hashtag CYG books to tell us what you've loved recently on Instagram. Oh, please tell us what you're reading and loving. Readers are leaders. <laughs> I would make such a good third grade teacher, like for real. Um, anyway. Wow, bold statement. I, mean, <laughs> I was just like, I would never say that I would make a good third grade teacher. Uh, most, no, I take it back. I would make a very inspirational third grade teacher, but that's about it. Uh, <laughs> shout out to all the educators who listen to CYG. Uh, shout out to the actual education professionals who right. listen to CYG. <laughs> I just want to inspire readers, okay? At a third grade reading level, let me have this. <laughs> we're we're delirious because we're tired from writing. Hello from Vermont again. We're writing our own book. Right, we're writing our own book, which one day maybe somebody will read. So See, this is why I'm like reading. I'm like I love reading other people's work as a way of being like okay, well, this is a standard I'm never going to reach, but let me revel in like someone else doing words right. <laughs> I know. It's also my favorite answer to whenever people are like, how's the book going? I'm like, you know, I'm reading a lot. It's <laughs> 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 always my, I was like, yeah, there's no, there's nothing. It's the best kind of procrastination after just like cleaning your house. You're like, yes, I'm reading for my mind. Oh my God. Um, yeah. I'm never going to read more than I'm reading when I'm writing a book. Like it's <laughs> never, I will never reach this level ever again. Um, I need all the scholastics like sticker tabs or whatever the things are. Oh my God. Um, okay. This is way off. Th this is like veering way off base. So I think that it's time to go back into the writing cave, <laughs> but um, see you on the internet, boo boo. See you in the book hole. <laughs> You can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. We're on Instagram and Twitter at CallYRGF, where Sophie Carter Khan does all of our social. Our associate producer is Jordan Bailey, and this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac.